uh, today uh, as here in this assembly and all over the world uh, people are celebrating the resurrection. Uh, they look to this one day of the year as uh, Easter or they call it a resurrection on the religious calendar. It is Easter Sunday. It is uh, the first day of uh, Feast of Passover, um, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Um, of course, as Reformed people, as a Reformed congregation, we would shun any kind of commitment to keeping a religious calendar. Uh, in fact, as was stated already this afternoon, uh, every Lord's Day is a celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That is why we gather on the first day of the week. It is that celebration of the resurrection of Christ, that seal of approval, that stamp of satisfaction from the Father, that the atoning sacrifice made on the cross was acceptable. It's one thing to be on the cross and to die for the sins of others. It's something else to have that sacrifice accepted by the Father. And so that resurrection is the stamp of approval that God is satisfied with the sacrifice that was made on that cross. The reality is that the resurrection is the central theme of apostolic preaching. Uh, this does not occupy the main portion of my lesson today, but I did want to bring out some of it for our attention this afternoon before we get into the bulk of our lesson. If you would, please, I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Acts. Or as our pastor calls it, uh, the, uh, the Acts of Jesus Christ through the apostles in the power of the Holy Spirit. So you will look through all of that in that title and you look in the book of Acts, you will see all of that there. I invite you to chapter 2 and we will pick up our reading in verse 22. We all know what's going on here. Peter is preaching on this day of Pentecost and he begins with these words in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then, of course, you have this section here related to David and, of course, Jesus Christ being David's Lord and David's son. And the description there in the psalm is not a reference to David as it is a reference to Christ. If you'll skip down to verses 29 through 32, Peter says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. So this statement in the psalm cannot refer to David. Verse 30, being therefore a prophet, that is referencing David, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, 
nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of all that, we are all witnesses. If you would now turn to chapter 3 and look at verse 14. Chapter 3 and verse 14, after the healing of this lame man, uh, let's go ahead and just pick up our reading with verse 11. It says, while he clung to Peter and John, all the people utterly astounded ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. When Peter saw it, of course he saw a crowd gathering, uh, he began to preach. He said, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead to this we are witnesses. Um, Another passage, if you would, chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. Just continuing this theme of apostolic preaching, chapter 4, beginning with verse 9. If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. It is by Christ. And just one other passage, he, Acts 13. And I, I am, I'm just being selective here. There, we, could, we could be here all afternoon to read all of these passages dealing with the central theme of apostolic preaching is the resurrection of Christ. That is the center of all of it. Acts 13, we'll pick up our reading with verse 28. Verse 28, of course, Paul now, we've moved on from Peter to Paul. Verse 28, and though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And repeatedly you would see this statement of Christ being crucified, Christ being raised, and that the apostles were the witnesses to that work. They witnessed all of this. Christ was raised. Why was he raised? Well, because he had died. Well, why did he die? Well, he died as a redeemer. Why do we need a redeemer? Why is it necessary that Christ would be on that cross to begin with, being a redeemer for anyone, not himself, but for others? Why? Well, that brings me to some rather bad news. Bad news is that we are all trapped in sin. The law is given to us and we read the law and it hems us in. 
We are trapped in. We, it's as though we're in a mousetrap. We're, we're, we are shut in and the laws demand here. We can't meet that. So we go this way. The law demands here. We cannot go here. We can't go to the left. We can't go to the right. We can't go behind or forward. We are shut in in our condemnation because we have all sinned. We are all guilty. If you would now please turn to Romans chapter 8. And this is in preparation for our theme this morning. Romans 8. And I'm going to be reading verses 7 through 8. Romans 8, verses 7 through 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We are condemned. We are trapped. We are lost in our sins. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. That is bad news. Ephesians chapter 2, you don't need to turn there, but Ephesians 2 verses 1 and 2, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Matthew Henry says this about that passage. All those who are in their sins are dead in sins. Sin is the death of the soul. Wherever sin prevails, there is a privation of all spiritual life. You may look alive for a moment, just as if you are cutting some beautiful flowers from your rose bush on an afternoon and you place them on your table that evening and they look so beautiful and alive, but they have been cut off from life because they've been cut off from the roots. This is sinful man, cut off, privation from all spiritual life. Continuing with Matthew's quote, Matthew Henry's quote, sinners are dead while they live. Being destitute of the principles and powers of spiritual life, they are cut off from God, the fountain of life. And they are dead, not only spiritually, but they are dead legally as a condemned criminal is said to be a dead man. You've probably heard that expression, a person who has been condemned to death and is still alive. We call him what? We call him a dead man walking. But criminally, he is charged and that's what he will deserve and that's what he will get. He will receive death. I'm afraid a lot of folks don't recognize their transgressions against God as a criminal offense. It's just a mistake. It's just an error, a, a mis, misplaced judgment. No, it is a transgression against God's holy law. And we are condemned and we are guilty and we know it. That's bad news. That's bad news. There is no way out. We are trapped in that reality. You don't need to turn here. Let me pat, read a couple of passages. Uh, just one passage. Psalm 14, verses 2 and 3. In Psalm 14, 2, we read these words. The Lord looks down from heaven to, on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. After that investigation of the whole land of all these generations of men, if there is any who seeks God, you have this result in verse 3. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. 
There is none who does good, no, not one. Well, that's bad. That's bad. You're waiting for me to tell you what's the good news. It gets worse. All right, that's bad news. There's worse news. All right, not only are you trapped and in your sins, and in my notes I have planned to go to Romans 3, but I will leave that to you at another time. It's, our time will slip if I go too, too much into that. But in Romans 3, Paul repeatedly discusses the calamity of men and how they're, how, and they're, they're fallen and horrible and sinful condition. Um, and if you can read down from verses 9 down to verse 18, where in verse 18 he says, there is no fear of God before their eyes, And then in verse 19, and we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. That would be us apart from Christ. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The bad news is that we are lost and we are criminals. The worst news is there is nothing we can do about it on our own. There's no way out. You cannot get out on your own. Only God can do that. Galatians 2, verses 15 and 16. And in fact, Paul says in verse 15, for we are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. In verse 16, he tells you, you cannot get out on your own three times, unless you miss it. He says it three times in one verse. Galatians 2, verse 16, for we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Three times in that one verse, you can't, you can't, you can't. So if you're going to be saved, you're going to have to be saved. Someone else is going to have to take the initiative to do that. Now that's the good news. And the good news is so good, as one person has said, because the bad news is so bad. But the good news is that we have a Savior for that. If you would please, Luke chapter 2. And I know what you're thinking. This is Resurrection Sunday, and you've gone to a Christmas passage. Well, don't they all go together? I mean, honestly, (laughs) you can't have one without the other. Luke chapter 2, we'll pick up our reading of verse 8. Luke 2 and verse 8. In the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were filled with great fear. The angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be to all people What makes that such good news? Verse 11, For unto you is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Jesus, the Messiah, came to save us. He is a Savior. From what does he save us? From what does he save us? Say, well, I've been saved. Jesus is my Savior. He came as the Savior. From what have we been saved? Jesus the Messiah came to save us from the outpoured wrath of God against sinners who have broken his laws. That's the salvation. That's the good news. Because we who are trapped in our sins and there's no way out for us, there is a Savior. There is one who has come. That is good news. God has taken the initiative to rescue us. 
he has eternally purposed to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus Christ to be the mediator between God and men. A mediator is a person who simply comes in between two parties who are at variance with one another in order to procure a reconciliation, to bring peace between those two people. And so when we sing our, our hymns at Advent, and we say that he has come to bring peace on earth, uh, that's, that's not a cessation of warfare, although that would be great. It is that he has come to bring peace between men and God. And that's the only way. It's through a mediator. Before the fall, there was no need of a mediator. After the fall, God is dishonored, highly offended. Man was alienated. Man was subject to the judicial displeasure of God. God said, you may eat of all the fruit of every tree in the garden, but if you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. And so an outsider looking at the scriptures would come to Genesis 1 and read that, Genesis 2, Genesis 3, and would expect that to be the end. That, that should be the longest part. Of the, the Bible should be three chapters long. Because God said, you eat that tree, you die, it's done, no more. But that's because we don't know the eternal, the eternal purpose of God and his plan. And that was to have a mediator between God and men. And he said so much to Adam in the garden at that, that great moment and when he promised this wonderful covenant that would be in the blood of Christ, that covenant of grace that would, that would come. And so we find in 1 Timothy 2, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. And what I would like to preach to you on this afternoon is this topic, Christ, the chosen servant. Christ, the chosen servant. And we'll cover that under three headings. The first heading is that he is chosen by the Father. Uh, the second heading is that he is chosen from all eternity. And thirdly, he has chosen to be the mediator. And we'll talk about those three topics today. First of all, under the grand topic, Christ the chosen servant, we have, first of all, he is chosen by the Father. Since God was the offended party, he and he alone has the right to allow satisfaction from a third party. Not only did he allow for a third party. He provided the third party. He provided the mediator in the person of the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. This choosing of the Son is part of the content of what we refer to as that covenant of redemption. We'll talk a little bit about that. It's a, it's a grand topic, a lengthy topic, and we couldn't hope to cover that in the few moments we have together. But understanding that in eternity past, in that great covenant between the members of the Godhead, there was this choosing of Christ to be the one who would redeem his people from their sins. Uh, if you would please, Isaiah 42. We'll look there at that passage regarding the choosing of the Son. Isaiah 42. And we will pick up our reading with verse 1. Isaiah 42 and verse 1. You have these words from the prophet, Behold, my servant. So you want to highlight that. Whom I uphold, my chosen, 
That's the second reference. You want to highlight that. In whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. That's what he will do again. That's your third reference. And when it says bring forth justice to the nations, that's a reference to those nations other than Israel, those Gentile nations. Verse, 40, verse 2. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. Not clamorous or contentious. He's not going to be boisterous. He's not going to be menacing. Verse 3. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. That's your fourth reference. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands. Again, that's a reference to those Gentile nations. They wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and the spirit of those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. That is God in the choosing of the Son as mediator. Christ, the chosen servant, he is chosen by the Father. How do we know that that passage refers to Jesus? We know that because it's quoted in Matthew's gospel, at least one reason we know it. Would you turn to Matthew 12, please? Matthew 12, and we're going to be looking beginning with verse 15. Matthew 12 Jesus on the Sabbath day has healed a man with a withered hand. And you come to verse 14, and the Pharisees have conspired how they might destroy him. Picking up by reading with verse 15, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all. And he ordered them not to make him known. And then you have this divinely inspired commentary by Matthew, beginning in verse 17. Wouldn't you love to have, you know, I have a lot of commentaries in my room. I have tons of commentaries. Not one is divine. Here I have in this book a divinely inspired commentary on Isaiah 42. So this is good stuff. This is important for us to get. Verse 17, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Now you know that had to grate on the ears of those religious leaders that this wonderful set of promises given to the nation in that old covenant would be brought to these Gentile nations who would then be grafted into that body become part of the people of God. They couldn't handle that. But this is Matthew's divinely inspired commentary on the events that he's witnessing. This is, to be, this is the fulfilling of Isaiah 42. He's quoting there. 
And Christ is the obedient servant chosen by God to do his will. In Matthew, in in Psalm 40, verses 7 and 8, you have these words. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it is written of me. And verse 8, a passage that is quoted in Hebrews 10. Jesus, in prophetic language from the book of Psalms, says, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is written, is within my heart. And so in that great covenant of redemption, this, this working of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, Christ is chosen to be the Redeemer. If you would please uh, turn to the book of Acts chapter 4. And I'm going to read verses 27 and 28. Peter has been released from jail. He has gotten out of jail. He reports back to the followers of Christ. And in this report, there's this prayer. And part of that prayer reads as follows, verse 27. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. And here's verse 28. What did they gather to do? Verse 28. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. They gathered in conspiracy. They gathered in hatred and in anger and thinking that their will was going to be done. And while I understand there's this this bringing together of human responsibility and the sovereignty of God, they were actually doing what God had already predestined to take place. This is what God had planned. And would you please turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 through 20. 1 Peter chapter 1, and I'm going to read verses 17 through 19. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Our conduct is what he's referencing is characterized as walking in the fear of God and it flows from our assurance of salvation. This assurance and this fear rest on that high price of redemption. God redeems his people not with money but with precious blood. Peter identifies that blood in verse 19. But with the precious blood of Christ and here's what you want to highlight. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, just as in the old covenant. And then Peter discusses Christ's predestination. And speaking about that lamb whose blood redeemed his people, Peter writes in verse 20, he, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. God the Father loved his Son with an eternal affection. And the Father sent him into the world to rescue his people 
from their sins. And that is the, that, this is an unveiling of God's eternal decree regarding redemption and regarding this Redeemer. I think I have. <laughs> um, if you would, one, another passage in this regard, Ephesians chapter 1, please. This always happens, and I have to tell myself not to rush. You're just going to, if we have to leave something out, we will. But Ephesians 1, beginning with verse 7, you have these words. In him, Ephesians 1, verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. Again, just like Peter mentioned, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And I love this, verse 8, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Just note all that language that has reference to God's purpose, God's plan, God's will. All of these things are are those things that that represent what took place in eternity past. What God had decreed to take place would take place. And so you have God the Father electing His own, electing His children, electing His family. You have God the Son who would go and redeem those very people and offer Himself as a substitute for their sins. Yes, we are guilty. Yes, we are sinners. Yes, we are criminals. But we throw ourselves on the mercy of the court and we throw ourselves on the mercy of the judge who then makes complete atonement and we are released. And we are declared righteous. Justified is a legal term, a legal declaration of being the recipients of an alien righteousness, that of righteousness of Christ alone. Um, Ephesians 1 verse 11, you have these words, in him we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his own will. In Acts 2 and verse 23, you have a reference to the definite plan of God. What God does in history is exactly what he decided to do in eternity. If we can speak of God, I was going to say the word in eternity past, but it's hard for me to think of speaking of God as in past, present, and future, who, who transcends time and space. When Scripture describes Christ's ministry, it portrays exactly what God predestined about Christ in eternity. It's exactly what would happen. His ministry. He became flesh. He performed a perfect life of active obedience He, in his passive obedience, effected an atoning death on the cross. He was raised from the dead. He ascended to heaven, is exalted and glorified as king. He presently continues in intercession as our high priest and will return a second time to complete redemption in redeeming not just our souls, but our bodies and all of creation. John Gill says this of Christ's ministry. Christ is the representative of his people in the covenant of grace. Their surety, in other words, their guarantee. It is a guarantee. Their mediator, their messenger, their ratifier, 
the great blessing. He is, he is the blessing of the new covenant, the sum and substance of the new covenant. All the blessings and promises of it are in him, and as such, he is given to us, John 3.16. It is God's free grace that he was appointed and entrusted with all of this in eternity and was sent in time to confirm and secure it for his people. What people? The people that were given him by his Father. The people that were redeemed by Jesus Christ. And those to whom the Spirit applies the blessings and the promises of the covenant. These are the elect of God from among both Jews and Gentiles. Jesus Christ specially called and commissioned to do this work. He is chosen by the Father. Secondly, he is chosen from all eternity. I'm just going to repeat these words. I can't remember where I asked you to turn last, but these come from 1 Peter chapter 1. So if you're anywhere in that neighborhood, you can turn there. Ephesians, 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 17 It says, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Verse 20, for he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. In my Bible, I have a marginal note next to that passage. It's from Revelation 13, verse 8. Let me read to you from Revelation 13, 7 and 8. Also, it, this is uh, the beast, was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given over it, given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it, Everyone whose name was not, has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of Lamb who was slain. Christ is chosen as Redeemer, as Savior, as Mediator. He is chosen by the Father. But he, that choice was made before there were ever people. That choice was in the mind of God before there was a planet, before there was a a universe. This was before the foundation of the world. Christ's work of mediation was ordained by God from all eternity. Revelation 17, 8, the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. I find it providential we come to that passage. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel at the beast because it was and is not and is to come. Ephesians 1.4 Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Titus 1 verses 1 and 2 Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. I, I, I love that line. I, just, I read through that really quickly. But think of what he, his, his ministry, this is his ministry statement in, first, in, in Titus 1.1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. For what? To do what? For the sake of the faith of God's elect 
and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. Paul is preaching. His ministry is marked out that he is preaching, preaching, preaching to all because the faith of the elect is at stake. And that God, he knows God will use that ministry of the word and preaching to effectually call his elect to himself and bring to them and grant to them faith and repentance. Um, and then verse 2, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, Titus 1-2, promised before the ages began. This this was nothing new. This was nothing strange. God's work of mediation was ordained by God from all eternity. It was ordained by the one from whom he, we were estranged because of our sins. He came to us. We talk so much of, of being seeker sensitive. But there is no one who seeks after God. It is God who is seeking. He is, as, as, as one pastor called that, that great bloodhound who is seeking his own. He is seeking his lost sheep. The sheep are not seeking him. I will never forget being uh, involved in a Sunday school class as a visitor, as a young, young man in a Sunday school class. And I, even in those days, I, I thought, this, this cannot be right. And the Sunday school teacher said, they were talking about uh, the book of, of Adam and Eve in the garden, and they sinned, and uh, that God promised them uh, life, but they sinned in the garden. And, and so God says, oh no, now what are we going to do? Um, the Sunday school teacher just went on with these little children. I thought, oh my word. Um, and said, well, what are we going to do? We, they've sinned and now they're, they're going to die. And how can we fix this? And you know, it's like God is in a quandary. And um, Jesus in the back and you know, says, well, I'll, I'll go down and, 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 and help them. And I just, I just I wanted to weep. At, 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 at best, this is just folly. At, at worst, it, it is sheer heresy to think that, that this would all take God by surprise. No, this was his plan, his purpose, his decree from before the foundation of the world. He would choose a servant, and so the servant Christ is chosen by the Father, and he is chosen before all eternity. And so we need to understand that God was pleased from all eternity to provide us with a mediator. The Father took the initiative, and he did so before the, before the first human was ever created. And the one who was the most offended in the relationship, God, is the one who took the initiative and the initial steps to bring about reconciliation. And so again, taking our, our, our cue from the first advent, we, the song we sing, Hark uh, the Herald Angels Sing, Glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners are reconciled because a savior has come, a redeemer. Christ, the chosen one, chosen by the Father, chosen and from all eternity, and then lastly, he is chosen to be the mediator. He's chosen to be the mediator. When we said that he was chosen by the Father, we learned who did the choosing. When we said that he was chosen from all eternity, we learned when and why that choice was made. And lastly, when we say that he has chosen to be the mediator, we are given the specific task for which Christ was chosen. Christ is the chosen servant 
chosen from all eternity by the Father according to his eternal purpose to do a certain task. That task is to be the mediator between God and men. A.A. Uh, A. Hodge, in his uh, commentary on the Westminster Confession of, Confession of Faith, suggests that, there, that, these things, that the things necessary in order for Christ to carry out this work of mediation fall under two categories. Christ's work of mediation as it relates to God and Christ's work of mediation as it relates to man. And I know that my time has, has pretty much come to a close. Let me just make these statements without much comment and we will, we will come to the, the close of this discussion of Christ who is our mediator uh, chosen by the Father from all eternity uh, to be that mediator. Under these two headings that are suggested by Hodge regarding Christ's work as mediator, Christ's work of mediation as it relates to God. Here's the first one. He must propitiate God's wrath by expiating the guilt of sin. Now, propitiation and expiation are two of those 75-cent theological words that sometimes need some explanation as we preach. Propitiation is simply this. It is the appeasement or the satisfaction of an offense. God's righteousness, God's holiness, God's righteous law has been offended. And it needs to be satisfied. Okay? That's propitiation. Expiation means to make amends for the wrongdoing. In other words, you have to set it straight. You've got to set this right. That's expiation. That's that, that putting away of that sin. Uh, making amends for that wrongdoing. So God's righteous character has been offended and it has caused his just anger and his wrath. And uh, again, in, in, in Romans chapter 3, uh, verse 20, you have these words, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since with the law comes the knowledge of sin. It is God who has to do this. In fact, let's, let's just close with, with this passage. And I will make some more statements. Romans 3, would you please? Romans 3. And we're going to pick up our reading. with verse 21. I'm going to start with verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins it was to show his righteousness at the present time highlight this so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus God's righteousness 
God had to be propitiated. His wrath had to be propitiated. Things need to be set straight in order for men to be redeemed. Think of this illustration, and as, as all illustrations, it's going to break down, so don't carry it too far. But think of it like this. You have a judge on the bench, and you have a criminal, and this criminal has done some horrible act. He has, I don't know, if he's run his car into a bunch of people and killed them. I, I don't know what he's done, but he has done some horrible act. And the judge gets before the people and before this individual says, you know, I am a merciful judge. I'm a kind, loving judge. And I, I'm just going to forgive this. He is forgiven and just going to let him go. And so you read about that in the paper the next day. If Anybody still get a paper? I don't know why. It shows my age. Uh, you read it or you, you see it on your favorite news feed, right? Whatever. All right. Um, this judge has let this guy go and you, you applaud that judge you know, he's a wonderful guy he's, he's a forgiving guy no you don't no you don't you weep because this is a travesty this is a travesty of justice justice has not been served this is, this is a travesty of justice but what if the judge sets everything straight and whatever is possible and again this is where our illustration breaks down but wherever it's possible to make amends and to propitiate that wrath and to expiate now that he can be just and a justifier and so this is what Christ has done in his mediatorial work as it relates to the Father he propitiates God's wrath by expiating our guilt so that he can be both just and the justifier you may have heard people say, well, how can God just let these people get off scot-free and go to heaven? And all they have to do is say, Jesus is my Savior, and they can just go to heaven. Well, it's, first of all, it's not that, it's, it, that's a mischaracterization of, of salvation. But second of all, it's not that they just get off, because there is a substitute, and that's Christ the mediator. Again, let me just make these statements. So, in Christ's work of mediation as it relates to the Father is the propitiation of his wrath and the expiation of our sins and guilt. Uh, number two, he has to plead our case as our advocate. So he stands before us, before the face of God, as our advocate. First John 2 and verse 1, My little children, I am writing these things to you, that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. That is that word that we have heard so many times, that parakletos, the one who is called alongside to be our advocate. Calvin says this, the intercession of Christ is a continual application of his death for our salvation. That is his work. Paraphrasing Calvin, because God has, a, has, our, has, reg, has regard to Christ as our intercessor, he then does not impute to us our sins. There's that regard of Christ. There's a, a, a hymn that I have sung. It says that God looked on Christ and his sacrifice and has pardoned me. He saw his sacrifice, and now I am pardoned. And the third thing that Christ must do in his mediatorial work as it relates to the Father is he must make us acceptable to the Father. If Christ is going to be our mediator, he must, according to uh, Hodge in his commentary, introduce our persons and services to the acceptance of the Father. And finally, these words, Christ's work of mediation, not as it relates to God, but as it relates to us. Four things. He must reveal the truth 
concerning our relation to God. So as the prophet, he reveals these things to us. He must reveal, secondly, the conditions for acceptance. We don't come to God on our own terms. He's the one who's the offended party. If there's going to be reconciliation, he writes the terms. And so we must have those terms revealed to us by Christ who is our prophet. Thirdly, we must, Christ must persuade and enable us to receive and obey. That's his work as king, as the, as, as in the office and function of a king. He is the one who persuades us and he enables us to receive him and to obey him. And lastly, the work of Christ's mediatorial work as it relates to man is he must sustain and direct us. And that's also what he does as king. So as prophet, he reveals these things to us, teaches us these things. As priest, he mediates to God and propitiates God's wrath, expiates our sins. And as king, he opens our eyes calls us, he summons us to come to him. That is that kingly office, that kingly function where he says, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And so we bow to him, we come to him recognizing our sinful condition, and we say, yes, Lord, what would you have me to do? I, I close with those words. And uh, on this wonderful day when all of the Christendom, at least, is uh, the greater Christendom looks on this day as a special day, uh, we remember Christ and his resurrection because all of that work that we just talked about is all due to the resurrection. If there was no resurrection, you can turn to 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul enumerates the sad conditions that would be real in our lives if there was no resurrection. There would be no hope. Our faith would be futile. Our witness would be a lie. Uh, There would be no resurrection. There'd be no life. We would of all people, we would be the most pitied because we set our hope on something that does not exist. But it does exist. And all that we've talked about in Christ and his mediatorial work is real and has been approved of God because of the resurrection. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we again thank you for the work of Christ. We thank you for that mediatorial work. We thank you that he has been chosen in that wonderful covenant of redemption between the members of the Godhead and that he came, volunteered. He did not, his life was not taken from him. He voluntarily laid it down in substitution that we might be declared righteous in the court of God and our, the righteousness of God and his 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 holiness would be appeased and propitiated and our expiation of our guilt and our sinfulness. We ask now, Father, for your blessings and help us to meditate on these things as we go forth from this place in Christ's name. Amen.